This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. In his new book, Rethinking Securities Law, Professor Mark Steinberg observes, The framework of securities regulation that prevails today in the United States is one that is comprised of piecemeal federal legislation, judicial decisions, SEC action, state blue sky activity, and self-regulatory organization oversight. As a consequence, the presence of consistent and logical regulation all too often is absent. With frequency in both transactional and litigation settings, mandates apply that are erratic and antithetical to sound public policy. To remedy key deficiencies in the current regime, Professor Steinberg calls on Congress and the SEC to rethink securities law, and he offers recommendations designed to create a more consistent and sound public policy framework. We're thrilled to have Professor Steinberg on the show to talk about some of the shortcomings he's spotted and preview several novel recommendations from his book, today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. Uh, I'm excited for this episode today. We got a little bit of an, an early look at Professor Steinberg's book, Rethinking Securities Law. Uh, it's a great read. There are a lot of good recommendations right. in there, maybe some a little controversial. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but I'm excited to explore some of the themes and recommendations with the man himself, Professor Steinberg. Professor, we are so glad to have you on Insecurities. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm so very delighted to be on your show. And the great thing, uh, Professor, that we get to see in the book is the sterling career that you have had that that helps underpin a lot of your experience and the recommendations that that are listed within the book. Uh, You you join a long line of insecurities podcast guests with such a career. And, And Kurt, I feel like if we read all of the full bios of our guests back to back, we might fill four or five, six episodes, uh, you know, just with reading about their their career. So maybe we, we slate that for when we need some content down the road. Uh, they might not get the most listens, but <laughs> we can give it a go. That's right. So again, as, as we normally do on the Insecurities Podcast, we're going to do a brief and, and probably, uh, you know, too short version of a bio here. But uh, Professor Steinberg is the Rupert and Lillian Radford Chair in Law and Professor of Law at the Southern Methodist University Dedman School of Law. Professor Steinberg previously taught at the University of Maryland School of Law, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, the National Law Center at the George Washington University, and the Georgetown University Law Center. And he has been a visiting professor, scholar, fellow at UCLA, as well as universities in Argentina, Australia, China, England, Finland, France, Germany, Israel, Italy, Japan, New Zealand, Scotland, South Africa, and Sweden quite a mouthful. It took us a while to put those in alphabetical order, but you're definitely uh, well-traveled, if not uh, if not well-practiced as well. And in addition, Professor Steinberg has been an expert witness in several significant matters, some of which we'll touch on today, including Enron, uh, the insider trading uh, allegations around Martha Stewart, and the Mark Cuban case. Professor Steinberg has served as a member of the FINRA National Adjudicatory Council, the NAC, 
and was an enforcement attorney at the SEC and the SEC's Special Projects Council, advising the Commission's General Counsel. Professor Steinberg has authored approximately 40 books and 150 law review articles. He's the editor-in-chief of The International Lawyer, editor-in-chief of the Securities Regulation Law Journal, and is an advisor to the Journal of Corporation Law. Congrats, uh, Professor, on an amazing career to date. We will ask that you add the distinguished uh, moniker of Insecurities Podcast guest uh, to your CV going forward. Others on the show have told us it's done great. Great for their career going forward. Well, thank you. That's very thoughtful of you, and I appreciate uh, your thoughts. Yeah, Chris, I think you you nailed it. We have had some impressive and uh, perhaps intimidating guests in the past, but Professor Steinberg's resume maybe takes the cake. Um, It's up there. Yeah, so excited to have him. Uh, No doubt a prolific author, lecturer, and commentator on U.S. securities law. As we mentioned up top, however, today we're going to focus on uh, Professor Steinberg's latest book, Rethinking Securities Law. The book was published by Oxford University Press in June 2021, just a couple months ago. And you can find and purchase the book on Oxford University Press's website or naturally on Amazon.com. Don't worry, listeners, we'll throw some links in the show notes so you can click on over and get a copy of the book. Before we dive into our conversation with Professor Steinberg, we want to give just a little bit of background on the book, just a little bit of context so uh, so folks will understand uh, where he's coming from and, and where the, rem- the recommendations are coming from. The Oxford University Press webpage for Rethinking Securities Law notes that it is the first source in four decades to comprehensively analyze or, I should say, rethink U.S. securities laws. The themes I drew from the book when I read it are that the U.S. securities laws and the agencies charged with interpreting and enforcing those laws have become inefficient, inconsistent, or in some ways no longer reflect or reinforce sound public policy. Rethinking securities law, therefore, focuses on key aspects of securities regulation and recommends reforms that may be implemented. The book addresses the disclosure regimen of the federal securities laws, exempt offerings, the Securities Act registration framework, corporate governance, private securities litigation, insider trading, mergers and acquisitions, and the SEC, and notably the SEC Enforcement Division itself, all usual hot topics here on the Insecurities Podcast. Uh, And importantly, the book's final chapter provides a summary of the recommendations that appear throughout the book, about 125 recommendations in total. So it is is a comprehensive uh, and thoughtful piece of work. In an article that Professor Steinberg posted on Harvard Law School's Forum on Corporate Governance, he acknowledged that the recommendations in the book may generate controversy or disagreement, but given the broad scope and the impact of the recommendations presented, uh, we should expect that they, some of them at least, might be controversial. We'll see if there's any controversy today on the show. I'm looking forward to talking about some of the recommendations. But uh, Chris, what, what can you tell us about the book? Uh, I mean, to me, I always look to those in the industry who have a similar background or have dealt in those areas. And and there is no uh, no shortage of praise for rethinking securities law. Uh, for example, former SEC Chairman Harvey Pitt states, quote, For anyone who cares about strengthening capitalism, improving the efficiency of our capital markets, and protecting investors, Professor Mark Steinberg's creative and thought-provoking book, Rethinking Securities Law, 
is a must read. And I have to note, I love the riff on the tripartite mission of the commission there. Professor Stephen Bainbridge of UCLA opines that rethinking securities law, quote, should be a strong candidate for law book of 2021. And former SEC general counsel Ralph Ferrara states, quote, by substantially enhancing the rules-based consolidation of six separate security statutes advocated by the American Law Institute, Steinberg has formulated an ecosystem of fairness and excellence to sustain access and exchange in our capital markets, end quote. Uh, to me, I mean, I can't think of three more, more prominent folks uh, talking to, to the quality of your book, uh, Professor. So we're great to, to read that aloud to our, to our listeners. Well, thank you very much. And, and apart from the content and, and the, the information in the book itself, the dedication that you provide in the book lists almost a who's who uh, in the past decades of securities regulation and enforcement. You dedicate this work to, among others, Judge Stanley Sporkin, who, as the director of the enforcement division, first hired you at the SEC and served as a mentor to you. Uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and former ambassador to the U.N., Arthur Goldberg, whom you assisted in connection with his position on the SEC's Advisory Committee on Tender Offers. Uh, you referenced Judge Stanley Barnes of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, who you clerked for, and Senator Robert Griffin from Michigan, for whom you served as legislative counsel. All of these professional connections are, are supremely impressive to us, but uh, Judge Sporkin is one of the favorites of our podcast. So talk to us a little bit about uh, what it was like working with and, and for Judge Sporkin and, and how you got started in the industry. It was a very unlikely and fortuitous situation for me. What happened was, was that I was finishing up my tenure with Senator Griffin. That was just a great position, being 26, 27 years old and being a legislative counsel to a U.S. senator who was a, a very intelligent man and an excellent lawyer. He later served uh, as a justice in the Michigan Supreme Court uh, after he left his position as senator. And I knew I wanted to... Uh, to be a professor someday, and I interviewed at various departments with the, with the government, and there was a hiring freeze on at the time. Uh, president Carter was president. Uh, there was a hiring freeze, and I interviewed at a number of agencies, very nice positions, and I was told, you're an interesting candidate, uh, but there's a hiring freeze. Please get back to us uh, when the hiring freeze is lifted. And then, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Judge Sporkin saw my resume uh, he liked my resume. I had written quite a bit even at that time. And he called me in and interviewed me and said to me, you have a job. And I said, well, how do I have a job if there's a hiring freeze? He says, uh, I'm not particularly concerned about the hiring freeze. We'll simply put you on <laughs> as a temporary, a temporary staff member for now. And once the freeze is lifted, uh, you'll become permanent. And I said to him, well, I never took securities law in law school. I really know very little about it. And he said, I don't care. You'll learn. And that's how I got hired by Judge Sporkin. And from then on, uh, we developed a, a very, very uh, close relationship. I dedicated my insider trading treatise to Judge Sporkin. Uh, he was instrumental uh, in me becoming a securities lawyer and securities professor and was really my mentor. Uh, he was there with, with me and for me when I had issues to discuss, and uh, he was a wonderful man, and of, of course, very, very successful in his career. 
Thank you so much for sharing this story. I mean, it's always wonderful to hear uh, to hear stories about Judge Sporkin in particular, but just to understand people's paths and how they they find their way into the securities regulatory world. It's not always uh, a direct path. I haven't met many people in all of my days recruiting in big law who tell me as a 1L, uh, you know what I really want to do is <laughs> securities regulation. <laughs> it seems to be something that that finds you in a sense. Um, but it, it's really great to, to hear those stories. All right, let's talk a little bit about about the book itself. Uh, we want to start with teasing out some of the you know the high level themes. You know the thirty thousand foot view. And there were a couple quotes that that I plucked out that resonated with me that I think are also sort of indicative broadly of of what you're what you're saying in the book. So I kind of want to just toss a couple of them at you and uh, you know tell me how you got there, why you think that, and how we should be thinking about it. So the the first one you say in the book that the existing securities regulatory framework in the U.S. is quote laudable, but it is quote, one that is comprised of piecemeal federal legislation, judicial decisions, SEC action, state blue sky activity, and self-regulatory over organization oversight. We sort of pulled that quote up top. Uh, you also note that there are many deficiencies and inconsistencies in the current framework. So tell us a little bit about some of the inconsistencies and deficiencies that that you've identified and how maybe they relate to this piecemeal framework? Sure. That's an extremely broad question, as as you know. Uh, Let me just provide a few examples. And I think we don't have to go back that far. Uh, For example, in 1995, we have the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, uh, which very much uh, impaired plaintiffs and investors from bringing lawsuits. it provided a great deal of protection to defendants, uh, directors and officers and so on, very strict pleading requirements, uh, very broad protection with respect to forward-looking information. That was followed uh, a year later uh, by uh, an act called NISMIA, uh, which basically preempted state regulation of a number of offerings, including, for example, Rule 506 Reg D offerings, and basically uh, restricted uh, state regulation of the offering process. And then in 1998, we had the Securities Litigation Uniform Standards Act, SLUSA, uh, which basically uh, uh, preempted uh, state court actions with respect to class actions involving nationally traded companies. So there we had a path of a three-year period of very pro-company, pro-defendant type legislation. And then four years later, Uh, Under a Republican administration, what we had was the passage uh, of the more most extensive corporate governance legislation ever passed under federal law. Of course, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act that federalized all sorts of aspects of corporate governance. I might add that three years ago, I published uh, another book with Oxford called The Federalization of Corporate Governance, uh, which talks about that since the early 1900s, Uh, there has been a gradual trend uh, towards federalizing corporate governance. And, of course, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in 2002, uh, followed by the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010, uh, certainly has uh, accelerated that federalization. And then two years after the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, uh, what do we have? We have the Jobs Act of 2012, 
which of course focuses very much on capital raising by smaller companies, uh, really focuses on capital raising, then investor protection, a short two years after Dodd-Frank. And then, of course, what we've had during the last several years, culminating at the end of last year, uh, are the SEC rules uh, that pro- provide broad, broad exemptions uh, with respect to uh, companies that are not in the uh, public reporting uh, situation. Uh, so what we have is an is a period of less than th- three decades where we have legislation that is very pro-transparency and then other legislation that is very much uh, inhibiting litigation, uh, that is antithetical to investor protection, uh, yet is very promising with respect to capital raising. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, and it certainly has changed things substantially for regulated entities and, and public companies that seek to uh, access the capital markets here in the U.S. I mean, somewhere in this mix, there uh, there is or should be, I guess, depending on your perspective, the, the SEC kind of making sense of this all and uh, acting as, you know, a sort of a, a robust regulator or um, an agency that provides some guidance for regulated persons and entities. Um, but you say in the book that the SEC has, quote, lost its luster. It no longer it is no longer viewed as a champion of investor protection or feared by high level executives of blue chip companies. Uh, you know, I would love to hear a little bit more about uh, I think what you see as sort of the SEC's waning presence. Um, but I'd also be curious to know what you think about uh, Gary Gensler and and whether your view is changing at all uh, in light of some of the recent appointments at the SEC. I think one of the real uh, situations the commission has got to live with, which it still has not reconciled, it's refusal to bring actions against high-level executives unless they engage in such conduct as insider trading or market manipulation. And I think this really came through with the Dodd-Frank Act. Uh, There is a statutory provision under the Securities Exchange Act called the Control Person Provision. It's in Section 20A of the Securities Exchange Act. What that provision basically says is that a person who controls another uh, is equally as liable unless the person who is the controller shows good faith. So this is an affirmative defense. So as an example, uh, the CEO of a company is a control person. If the company makes a materially misleading statement, the CEO is equally as liable unless he or she shows that he or she acted in good faith. This is a provision that is used with regularity, customarily done, regularly done by plaintiffs in securities class actions. Control persons, CEOs, chief financial officers, chairs of the board of directors, chair of the audit committee, these individuals are sued as control persons in private litigation. As a matter of course, it's a wonderful claim for the reason that once you show a primary violation, the control person is equally liable unless that control person affirmatively proves as a defense, it's not part of the plaintiff's case in chief, that he or she has acted in good faith. Well, remarkably, with this statutory provision in hand, the SEC did not use this statute one time during the financial crisis, not one time. About four years ago, I wrote a law review article uh, in a University of Virginia law journal, and I criticized the commission for this. 
Shortly thereafter, I'm not suggesting that my article had any impact, the commission finally did use the control person provision in the ITT case. Since then, and so far as I know, the commission has refused again to implement the control person provision. So I think if you're looking for one example that stands out with the commission's disinclination to sue high-level executives is in this situation. A statute is right there for the SEC to use, and the commission refuses, unlike the private bar who uses it with regularity, refuses to implement that provision. To me, that is unacceptable, simply not fulfilling its statutory mandate, the tools that it has. And with respect to Mr. Gensler, uh, I'm waiting to see with respect to Mr. Gensler, is he going to have the fortitude uh, to implement the SEC statutes, the SEC resources, the enforcement resources that the commission has? That's the question. I know he's into this ESG disclosure. Uh, My response is, if I'm corporate counsel and the commission's focus is on ESG disclosure, I am doing a dance Mm -hmm. because the commission should be focusing on far more substantive issues that impact investor protection than ESG disclosure. ESG disclosure is simply another way for the commission to indirectly impact corporate governance, which the commission has done in a number of areas, which I don't criticize the commission for. The theory in part, although the commission is not articulating this, is that the more these companies have to disclose about their ESG disclosure, then the more likely it is for them to behave responsibly and to act consistently with the public interest. That's all well and good, uh, but with respect to more important issues, uh, I don't see any, any dialogue coming from the commission at this time with respect to facing these far more difficult and important questions. I think that provides a great background of your view of, of where we sit today. And, and I love the history lesson is I'm very familiar with all of those acts, but getting them in rapid succession really puts a different viewpoint uh, on how the how the administration has changed or, or how the landscape has changed from a, a regulatory perspective. This is not a Republican or a Democratic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to stress uh, w- with respect to the lack of implementing the control person provision, uh, this was under the Obama administration. So we had a chair appointed by a Democratic president, confirmed by the Senate, and of course, three commissioners on the SEC at that time who were Democrats uh, when the commission refused to implement the control person provision. To our listeners, we're not going to do 125 recommendations here today, uh, Professor, but we will talk through a few of them. Uh, And these recommendations relate to the disclosure framework for public companies, issuer exemptions, corporate governance, SEC enforcement policies and penalties, insider trading, private securities litigation, and our listeners are sure to to surmise much, much more than just those topics. But I want to start with one of the recommendations that has caught my eye. Uh, as, As Kurt knows, and some of our guests have heard in the past, as an accountant, I'm a big fan of the discussion around materiality and (laughs) disclosure. And, uh, you know, Professor, you posit a sort of what I'll I'll call catch-all regarding your proposed way a company should uh, disclose or is responsible to disclose information and and consider materiality. Is that right? Uh, Yes. And it is not a novel approach. It's the approach developed, for example, by the European Union. Uh, So this uh, concept that a company must disclose all material information 
unless they have a business justification for withholding disclosure, uh, is the rule in many countries today. So under the under the U.S. system, let's assume that a company has not spoken in the matter. Once a company decides to speak on the matter, of course, it must speak truthfully. And if there's material information that is being withheld, uh, then, of course, the company has an obligation uh, to correct that misstatement that was previously made. Uh, so uh, this goes to the issue of where disclosure has not been made. When we look at what disclosure is requir- required with respect to narrative disclosure, of course, we look to Regulation SK. And of course, the key SEC forms here with respect to reporting are the forms 10K, the 10Q, and the 8K. Unless the information is called for by those items, as many, many courts have said, unless the information is called for by those items, there is no obligation to disclose information, even if it is material. So, for example, when the SEC adopted the 8K, Uh, The SEC declined to require a company as part of its current reporting to disclose the loss of a material contract. And this does not have to be disclosed until the next 10Q. So that means under the U.S. system, a company can lose a major contract today and wait until disclosing that, not for business days as is required by the AK, but they can wait to disclose that until the filing of their next 10Q, which is several weeks later. So what happens is, is there's the withholding of material information from the marketplace, which of course impairs the entire framework of the efficient market theory. And as importantly, of course, investors are buying and selling in the public domain, and they don't have important information that would very much impact their decision-making process. And that is unacceptable. The European Union views this as unacceptable. Uh, Many other countries do as well. And uh, unless there's a business justification, such as being involved in merger negotiations, and the deal uh, may be scuttled if the negotiations are found out, that would be a business justification. But unless the company can affirmatively establish a business justification, if the information is material, then it must be timely disclosed. And of course, this would greatly minimize the opportunities for insider trading, needless to say. So I'm going to put on my my defense lawyer's hat here for a second. And aren't you wearing that all the time, Kurt? Well, you know, sometimes not when I'm hosting this show, but uh, (laughs) just uh, you know, get your view on this. Uh, Maybe pushing back a little bit, but you know, what I what I read in the book is that you um, you propose that public companies should disclose all material information within one business day after they become aware of it, absent, quote, a meritorious justification. Uh, You know, as you know, concepts of materiality can be fluid and it can take some time to understand whether a particular development is in fact material. So is it a meritorious justification to say to investors or to the market or to the SEC, I didn't disclose this within 24 hours because I was trying to get my arms around it. I didn't even know if it was material. The information needs to be disclosed uh, after the company uh, becomes aware that this information is material. Uh, As the Supreme Court has repeatedly said, there are no bright lines of materiality. Uh, As you mentioned, it's fluid. uh, And of course, it's looked at with the benefit of hindsight. So there are some situations where simply materiality must be scrutinized 
uh, must be discussed, and then the decision must be made. But other times, for example, you have very clear issues, such as the loss of a material contract. That's clearly material. They will impact the company's future earnings. And yet this doesn't have to be disclosed uh, in some cases for a number of months. And that's utterly, utterly unacceptable. Uh, another example is that there's no, no requirement to disclose why uh, the chief executive officer resigns, which the commission does at the service because, of course, the institutional investors are going to want to know. And the company is going to have to deal with regulation FD problems. But on the other hand, the 8K only requires the fact that the CEO has resigned, but does not require the reasons for such resignation or termination. That's another example that it happens. And there's court decision after court decision saying, well, this information may be material, uh, but it's not required to be disclosed by SEC rule. The company hasn't spoken about this. So therefore, even though this information would be important to investors, it's not required to be disclosed. And in my view, this is unacceptable. It's contrary to other developed markets in the world. The commission had this opportunity in 2002. This goes back to your earlier question. Uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act uh, granted the SEC uh, the authority and, in fact, directed the commission to implement a current and rapid reporting system. What the commission could have easily done in 2002 is adopt the EU model, that if the information is material, once it becomes known to be material to the company, it must be disclosed within 24 hours. What the commission did instead is that it simply expanded the laundry list in the Form 8K. That's how it dealt with that, uh, which was, uh, in, in my view, an unacceptable way to handle this. Okay. So I think we've got the bounds of your recommendations uh, relating to the disclosure of material information. And, you know, it sounds... It sounds like what you would would suggest is that we adopt something that looks a little bit more like what's going on in the EU, which is a 24-hour window to report to the market material information. And, and the clock starts when you realize or when the company makes a determination that the, the information is, in fact, material. Uh, Chris, I, I know we could kick this around probably for another hour. Yeah. Let's hop to an, another uh, recommendation that hits on what has been a, a fairly hot topic in the securities regulatory space and honestly a controversial one. And that relates to accredited investors. Uh, during uh, Chair Jay Clayton's tenure at the SEC, uh, the commission took steps to actually expand the universe or broaden the definition of investors or persons who may be deemed accredited investors. There are some rumblings, I think, um, that, that Chair Gensler may try to pare that back a little bit. I think it's actually something that's in his reg flex agenda. Professor, I know that you think maybe the SEC should reconsider how it conceives of accredited investors. So tell us a little bit about how you think about it. What are your recommendations there? The commission, of course, has very much liberalized the exempt offering rules uh, in 2020 uh, with expanding the definition of accredited investors, uh, with respect to expanding uh, the exemptions, for example, permitting testing the waters to the world, permitting these uh, demo days to occur, and expanding the monetary amounts of the various exemptions. This is one of those substantive issues that I would hope that Chairman Gensler would step forward and make loud and clear that the monetary amount that would qualify an individual accredited investor 
must be changed. I'm not troubled with the commission's expansion at the end of the last year with respect to those individuals who have earned certifications, uh, educational type degrees uh, that make them accredited investors. Uh, In fact, those individuals are more likely to be financially sophisticated than a number of the investors who qualify simply on wealth alone. As we all know, uh, individual accredited investors uh, are those who have a million dollars net worth exclusive of, of one's primary residence uh, or an individual who makes $200,000 of income during the past two years and recently expects to make the same this year or $300,000 in joint income with one spouse or spousal equivalent. Uh, these figures have not been changed since 1982, except with the proviso that the Dodd-Frank Act, not the SEC, uh, legislated that the value of the principal residence be excluded from the $1 million net worth calculation. Mm-hmm. The result is, in view of inflation, in view of simply the percentage of the population that qualifies as accredited investors today, uh, to assume that these individuals, and what this assumes is that these individuals irrebuttably are financially sophisticated and have access to material non-public information. And of course, this is a fallacy. We know it's a fallacy and it was adopted in order to cabin in Rule 506 within the Rule 4A2 exemption within Roston Perino, decided by the Supreme Court in 1953, that one must have access to material information uh, that is provided or, or, or must be provided with that information. And secondly, that one must be financially sophisticated or advised by someone who is. Well, the result is, is that we have all these individuals who are not financially sophisticated, who clearly don't have access to this information, where no disclosure is required under the exempt offering rules. And this is utterly unacceptable. This amount has stayed the same since 1982, and neither Democratic nor Republican administrations have changed this. Chairman Gensler has not said one word about this at this point, and I'm waiting. Yeah, I think that's a good way to frame it. I always like to talk about the uh, the paper generation versus the computer generation. And if we haven't changed the value from before that uh, that crossover point, right, uh, uh, in 1982, uh, I can see that as, as an issue going forward as well. The whole deal is, is that, of course, deal lawyers uh, are concerned, as, as well as those raising the money, that if you raise the million dollar limit, What's going to happen is it's going to be harder to do these deals because it's harder to get these accredited investors if you raise the amount, if you basically index from $1982 to $2021, that is going to decrease the pool significantly of accredited investors, which is going to be harder to do these deals because in order to do these deals, then you're going to have to prepare the information package that's required by Rule 506B to non-accredited investors, which is quite lengthy and uh, comprehensive disclosure. So here the commission is clearly favoring capital raising over investor protection. And this has happened under both Democratic and Republican administrations. Next up, Professor, we want to talk about your your theories on insider trading reform. And Kurt and I have talked with numerous guests on the Insecurities Podcast in the past about this kind of amorphous idea of insider trading. But you hit on a few key points with regards to those Section 16 officers and directors, 
typically identified as, quote unquote, insiders that may possess material non-public information in the performance of their duties in the C-suite or on the board. Um, You feel the disclosure of their trading activity might be adjusted in a way that makes allegations of insider trading basically moot. Did I read that right? Well, not necessarily moot, but it certainly does lessen the opportunity for insider trading and for tipping and the like. And uh, this may sound controversial, but it's rather straightforward. Of course, the insiders will hate this recommendation, Mm -hmm. but this recommendation is clearly good for the securities markets and clearly good for investors other than insiders. And it's a very simple change. And today, uh, the Form 4 must be filed uh, within two days after an an officer or director trades. My recommendation is, is that the Section 16 insider must file the Form 4 before he or she trades and then has to wait until the next business day to execute the trades. That way, the market will know what the insider is selling. In other words, the amount of shares that the insider is selling uh, and will be apprised of this information prior to the insider executing the trades. And what's the rationale? These individuals are fiduciaries. Right now, they stand at the front of the line. I understand they're not trading on material information. If they were to do so, of course, they'd be violating the insider trading laws. And of course, as we discussed earlier in the show, materiality is a fluid concept. And of course, uh, how often does the SEC bring these insider trading claims against officers and directors of major companies. It does happen occasionally, but not frequently. An easy way to fix this situation is to have those fiduciaries not stand at the front of the line, but as fiduciaries, go to the back of the queue. Let them file the Form 4, apprise the marketplace that they intend to trade. The marketplace will know. And then one day later, it ha- let's suppose we're here on a, uh, on a Wednesday, they file today, and then they can trade tomorrow. There are a, a few key concepts in terms of at least insider trading jurisprudence that we would have to rethink in order to really put in place a system like this. And that includes, I think, what is the definition of insider, at least for purposes of figuring out who has to file a form for in advance of trading? And what is the definition of, of material information um, or the type of information that we don't want insiders trading on in advance of the market? You know, I think that maybe requires a broader legislative fix. And, and I think you would like to see that too. Uh, you know, in the book, you say, The U.S. securities law framework with respect to the regulation of insider trading is, quote, abysmal, and Congress should enact comprehensive legislation that meaningfully and clearly addresses the contours of the insider trading prohibition. Do we need an insider trading statute, and and would it get at some of these issues that, that you're concerned about with respect to insiders trading before the market? Now, let me just uh, step back for a moment. And just comment on your on your question, please. And, and that is, uh, I believe the current 16 uh, reporting with directors and officers and 10% shareholders or security holders, I'm perfectly fine with that. I don't think that should be expanded. And, and I think one of the benefits with respect to materiality within the U.S. system uh, is that it is a very appropriate definition. It takes into account quantitative as well as qualitative factors. Uh, We've got uh, qualitative materiality with respect to, for example, SAB 99. 
I think uh, materiality is applied uh, for the most part uh, in an even-handed and consistent manner. So I'm perfectly fine with those definitions. Uh, my point is, is that simply those, those insiders, uh, the directors and officers and 10% security holders, uh, they ought to file plain and simple uh, before they trade rather than two days after they trade. It certainly is different than what we see in other countries. And I know Judge Rakoff and others have long called for some kind of legislative fix that would make clear sort of the bounds of our insider trading or provide some clear definitions, maybe driving at something more like a uh, a prohibition on trading. If you have certain kinds of information, um, regardless of the source, regardless of whether there's a duty um, that you can point to, but just mere possession of the information is the key that would prohibit someone from trading. Is that, does that align a little bit more with, with what you're thinking? Well, that's basically what Rule 14A3 has, and that's what many countries have, including the EU and Australia. Uh, perhaps surprisingly, I don't go to that for an extent. Uh, what I would do is adapt the rule adapted by many other countries who have rejected the parity approach in favor of the access approach. Basically, the law that existed under Texas Gulf Sulphur prior to the Supreme Court's decision in Chirillo, and that is if, 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 if an individual has access to material non-public information, that if his or her position gives, gives him or her uh, the entitlement to, to to receive that information where the investing public is not, uh, then one cannot trade or tip of that information. And if one receives that information uh, from a person who has such access, having reason to know that that person has such access, the tippy cannot trade or tip either. That's basically the law that exists in this country uh, before Chirilla was decided in 1980, and that's the and that's the framework that I advocate in the book. It sounds like maybe, uh, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but but maybe we would just benefit from more robust enforcement in in this space. And I know that's another area where you make some recommendations in the book. You say that uh, the SEC's enforcement policies, practices, and priorities are misguided and should be corrected. Uh, you recommend that they adopt some measures that would rethink things like the monetary penalties that the SEC imposes in uh, civil enforcement actions, granting waivers, um, and how the SEC thinks about charging decisions against financial services firms. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of your recommendations around the enforcement program. Sure. And uh, I, I might add, I think the commission has done a nice job with respect to insider trading. Uh, so I do want to emphasize that, uh, particularly with respect to uh, the obstacles the commission has uh, with the laws. Going on to uh, other key points, uh, for example, uh, I, I spoke before about the control person provision. Uh, let me give two examples where the commission has simply taken away investor rights. I mean, this just makes me scratch my head. Uh, with respect to the Form 8K, what the commission has done is set up a safe harbor uh, from liability if a company does not disclose certain items within the Form 8K. So in other words, we have a situation where a company is aware that information must be filed pursuant to the Form 8K, and yet the company declines to do so and the executives decline to do so knowing that the information is required. By SEC rule, those items are within a safe harbor 
from Section 10B liability. Of course, the commission can still sue based upon, for example, Section 17A of the 33 Act, which is also an anti-fraud rule, which does not give rise to a private right of action. What the commission has done here is taken away the right of investors to sue for intentional failures by insiders to file important information that is called for by the Form 8K. One just must scratch one's head with respect to how the commission has permitted this to happen. Another example is that if you have information that you're filing uh, with respect to certain forms, uh, the company can determine whether to furnish that information or to file that information. If one furnishes that information rather than files that information, the company and subject defendants do not have Section 18A liability under the Securities Exchange Act. Of course, the commission can sue under Section 10B, private investors can sue under Section 10B, but Section 18A can be a very important remedy to investors in individual actions. And the commission takes that away from investors for no sound reason. So here are two examples where the commission goes out of its way to protect insiders from liability exposure with respect to investors who would otherwise have a valid cause of action. This is simply inappropriate for an agency that is charged with protecting investors. Again, I'd like to see Chairman Ginsler focus on these issues rather than rather than ESG disclosure. These issues are far more important to investor confidence than focusing on, on ESG disclosure. I'm not saying the commission should abandon ESG disclosure. But again, if I were inside counsel, I'm saying to myself, let the commission go at this. This should be the least of my worries, is putting in more disclosure and now making these, these disclosure documents another 30 pages long, which investors won't be able to read. And in that regard, what I also suggest in the book is that there be a mandatory summary section at the beginning of each disclosure document. These disclosure documents are so long, there's so much information overload that there's no way an ordinary investor can review this information. And particularly if, if the uh, 34 periodic reports are incorporated by reference into a registration statement. Who in the world has enough time to go ahead and read all the 10Ks and 10Qs and 8Ks have been incorporated by reference? What the commission can easily do uh, is that it can require that a summary section setting forth the basic facts, circumstances, the key risk factors, and so on, that the, that be set forth in a summary section of the prospectus or of the tank here and the tank queue, for example, not to exceed a certain length of pages, such as in a 10K, not longer than 10 pages. Professor, apart from page limits and some of the focuses uh, that you've talked about already on, on this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, you also take aim at the very foundation of the commission itself and with a little bit more thought than, say, I don't know, Bobby Axelrod's angry and profane monologues on the Showtime show Billions. <laughs> little plug for episode 31 for our listeners. If you haven't listened to our show uh, about the TV show Billions, that's great. But Professor, your criticisms mirror many that we hear in the media and from, from law enforcement officials regarding the SEC's effectiveness and the potential leniency granted to some of the bigger players in securities markets. And also you talk about the way the commission should be made up today uh, in your opinion, versus how it's been patchworked together over the past 80, 90 years. So talk to us about some of the main recommendations you have for a restructuring of the commission, as you talk about in the book. 
Sure. Uh, of course, there have been criticisms about the revolving door that SEC staff, uh, they go to the commission uh, for three, four years. Uh, many go for a much longer period of time. Uh, they rise to the level of associate director or director, and then they make their way into private practice. And especially those who become a, a director, they make their way into large law firms and make millions of dollars a year and so on, and, and that this will, will color uh, their decision-making process and so on because they're too rigorous with respect to uh, those they, the commission are, is regulating that uh, this will impair their job prospects. I understand that, uh, but I don't think there is a feasible solution to that. You do want to have a, a very great market of talent, uh, which the commission has. The commission staff is superlative uh, in, in its quality and has been historically. So I think the answer lies in the composition of the commission itself. After all, the, the, chairman, the chairman or the chairwoman, uh, he or she directs the policy of the commission to a large extent, and the other commissioners uh, can have significant input as, input as well, because of course the chair needs two other commissioners in order to effectuate action. Uh, if we look at the composition of the commission in the last 40 years, uh, what we see are commissioners that come from on a very uh, inordinate uh, percentage basis uh, from large law firms, uh, from large financial firms, uh, from corporations. And what we don't see are commissioners coming uh, from other avenues, even though they know securities laws very well. And one key illustration is, is that there are superlative plaintiffs, securities lawyers, investor securities lawyers in this country. I mean, we're talking about firms like Robbins Geller, Bernstein, Littlewitz as examples. Those are two examples. I mean, these are, these are very good law firms. Are you telling me that there is not one expert securities lawyer in any of these firms uh, to be appointed to the SEC? Never, in, to my recollection, has an attorney who has represented investors been appointed to the commission itself. I would think that he or she brings a very different perspective than the chair who returns to his or her Wall Street law firm after he or she ends his or her position as chair. And then what about organizations like Helpers uh, or ARP? I mean, these organizations have, have their members uh, very much involved in the securities markets, the general counsel, other high-level attorneys within these organizations, uh, many of them know securities laws. Uh, they would be well-placed to be on, on the Securities Commission. What about state securities commissioners? The states, as you know, and as we know, have been far more vigilant with investor protection than the SEC has been. What about appointing a state securities commissioner to the SEC? What we are seeing is basically individuals coming uh, from from the big big law firms or big corporations or from Capitol Hill. That's the exception, Capitol Hill, and there and a few academics here and there. That's an exception as well. But for the most part, what we have is a very very uniform package, and it lacks diversity. Diversity, of course, as far as gender gender and race and all that, that has been improved. There's no question about that. But we need diversity of viewpoint. And the diversity of viewpoint happens when we have 
commissioners coming from different constituent groups. And if you really want meaningful law reform for the commission to take a step forward, this has got to happen. Because if the commissioners come uh, from big business, big law firms, then of course we're going to simply get more of the same. Whether we have Democrats or Republicans in, in office, as we've seen for the last 30 years. Chris, I know you are excited because Professor Steinberg would like That's to see right. an accountant on the commission. Yeah. I know a few. I know a few. Yeah. If the commission takes this up, I'm happy to send some recommendations around. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I will say there have been benefits over the past, let's say, 10 years or so to having uh, e economists on the commission. Uh, I think uh, Mike Pivovar was the first economist to to sit on the commission. Um, and it brings a different perspective. So, I, you know, I, I would tend to agree with you, Professor Steinberg. There is a benefit to having a diversity of perspectives on the commission. I'd like to add here, just so that I, that I kind of clear the air here, uh, that, that a number of my thoughts, a number of people may think, well, he's, he's basically just a, a plaintiff's advocate here. Well, I should add that, that the vast majority of my expert witness cases are on the defense side. I've been of counsel to two corporate law firms uh, that uh, a, a lot of the recommendations in the book uh, favor uh, defendants uh, more than they favor investors. For example, one recommendation that I make is that there no longer be strict liability under the securities laws. Strict liability should be eliminated. So th that I just want to clear the air here that that I, I don't I'm not writing this from a plaintiff's perspective. I'm basically writing this based upon uh, my experience with the securities laws since 1978. And I've been wanting to write this book for my entire career. And I'm, I'm very glad I've finally been able to get this done. I think that comes through. I have to say, Professor, you know, when Chris and I were talking about it in preparing for the episode, we we were commenting on how sort of balanced the approach is, right? Yeah, there yeah. are recommendations um, on both sides and and frankly, some novel recommendations that that I at least haven't heard um, people talking about before. You know, I'm glad that you, that you clear the air, as you say, but really, I think it's a pretty balanced approach to mm -hmm. how uh, how we might rethink the securities laws. Thank you. Uh, Professor Steinberg, we want to again congratulate you on the book. Obviously has received resounding praise from, from your colleagues and, and those in the industry. Uh, and for those uh, listeners out there interested in reading more, uh, you can see that at the Oxford Press uh, website as well as on, on Amazon to pick up your copy of Rethinking Securities Laws. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Professor Mark Steinberg of SMU. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. 
For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.